So I think um, you'll all agree that was really a wonderful um, opening session. And uh, thank you again to the presenters and to you for your questions and interest. Um, so this is a transformation from the um, um, smooth and slick and studied and slim Dr. Volberding, right, <laughs> to me. Uh, and um, <clears throat> as you said, we've worked together on this for 25 years, and it's been such a great pleasure. And the next sessions will um, be very interactive. And first address, with hep address hepatitis C, which I know many of you are actively involved with and others thinking about it, and many confused, but um, I think we're all envious as HIV providers that uh, we had the same sort of therapeutic outcomes that now are available with hepatitis C. It's gonna be wonderful to hear about those. And our presenter is Dr. Marion Peters, who's a professor of medicine and holds the John V. Carbone, MD Endowed Chair in Medicine. And she is also Chief of Hepatology Research there and is particularly interested in the immunology of chronic liver disease and the liver um, uh, and viral and autoimmune diseases. So um, Marion, please come to the podium. Thanks, Jerry. It's great to be talking about something we've cured. So I still have 30 minutes. So these are my uh, conflicts of interest. And we're going to talk about current treatment, how to assess fibrosis, problems and benefits of cure, and long-term monitoring. So this is the first ARS question. And I hope I get 10 out of 10 from Kristen. Um, liver fibrosis stage is not assessed by transient elastography, liver biopsy, APRI, FIB4, or ultrasound. Click harder. Everybody's responding, so I think it's okay. But the thing isn't going. See, look? Yes. What do you think? <laughs> think I'm in trouble? I think I just, I'm just gonna reset it really quickly. Look at it, they got it right. Okay. They did it. Great. They don't need me. They do need you. I'm going to get us back. Okay. I'm going to do this. We've done that, though. So we want to... Okay. This is the next one. After HCV cure, what hepatocellular surveillance do cirrhotic patients need? None, as HCV cure reduces the risk. Continue as long as the patient remains cirrhotic by transient elastography or other serum markers. Continue surveillance or only if risk factors are present. I can keep talking. All right. <laughs> so what's important is, where's the pointer? There it is. Hepatitis C is actually taken over 
from all notifiable infectious diseases combined. So even though we have a cure, we have hepatitis C as an exploding populational problem and access is a real issue. So as you know, there are at least three to five million in the US and many more worldwide. And of patients who are co-infected, about 25% uh, of patients who have HIV, 25% are co-infected. And this slide is a very nice slide from Andrew Hill looking at the result of 20, a meta-analysis of 130 studies of nearly 24,500 patients looking at the risk of transplant cancer, death, and reinfection, whether you had a cure or you didn't. So no cure is in red. So on the left is the five-year all-cause mortality, and you can see in general it halves it. If you're cirrhotic, it does a lot better, no surprise, because they're the people at highest risk of death. And if you're co-infected, an amazing response to curing their hepatitis C. Then on the right is the risk of cancer, and you can see the risk of cancer goes down markedly. It doesn't go to zero, but it goes down markedly with cure. Now, the benefits are offset by reinfection. Reinfection is really quite low in low-risk individuals. It's thought to be about 8% in persons who inject drugs. And there's some data showing it's around 20 to 25% in patients with HIV, who, in men who have sex with men. This is probably an overestimate from data from London and from Berlin. Data last week from Amsterdam showed that it was much, much lower percentage. And some early data we have suggests that it's also well under 10%. This is the emerging epidemic of hepatitis C. So this is what we used to see in 2005. It was a predominantly a popular, the baby boomer population, mainly male. But now what we see is this boost of young individuals, in half of them women, half of them men, childbearing age. So it's a big issue in uh, particularly rural populations, in particularly the states that I'm not in, um, and in, <laughs> and particularly in the states who are at highest risk of not getting care for their hepatitis. So what other benefits are there for cure? This is the benefit in diabetic patients. And you can see on the left, end-stage renal disease in nearly 8,000 patients. This is patients in blue is not having hepatitis C. In red, if you have hepatitis C and you're not treated, you have a markedly increased cumulative incidence of end-stage renal disease. And if you treat with hepatitis C, it's even below uninfected. On the right is ischemic stroke. And you can see the blue is uninfected. And the effect of treatment decreases. So the hazard ratio protection for end-stage renal disease was 0.16. For ischemic stroke, 0.16. 
0.53, and for acute coronary syndrome was 0.64. These are benefits of removing chronic inflammation, something you know all about from HIV, but we, would, we are just learning from hepatitis C. So how do we assess fibrosis? There are non-invasive markers, APRI, FIB4. APRI uses AST platelets, FIB4 uses AST platelets, ALT and AGE. They're available online or in your calculator. Non-invasive assessments, transient elastography, is readily available in many parts of the country, and there are a number of machines in uh, New York. It's simple, it's quick, it's not expensive. Um, uh, uh, ARFI, or acoustic radiation, used as part of ultrasonography, is available in many places, not as much data on that. And uh, MR fibrosis assessment is much more expensive and probably a lot better because it looks at the whole liver, but we don't use it for clinical care. And rarely do you need a liver biopsy. If you're not sure the patient doesn't have hep C and something else, if you're worried they have autoimmune disease, you need to treat that. If you're worried they may have fatty liver, you need to assess that. So the overview of 2017 is who do we treat? We treat everybody. Because, we, well, we don't treat everybody. We treat everybody who's considered to survive at least a year, who isn't having transplantation or other directed therapy that would change their life. So if they have short life expectancies, we don't treat them. Otherwise, everybody should be treated because of these benefits. We have our first pan-genotypic single pill approved. The duration of therapy is 12 weeks, and in people with 6 million copies, even down to 8 weeks, but not approved for HIV co-infected patients. Cures are 95% to 100%, so I'm showing you no data on responses because the difference between 95 and 100% is just who you happen to hang out with that day. Most patients don't require ribavirin, and there's an error in your handout that I'll point out. And there's even effective options for the historically hardest to treat populations. So these are all the DAAs. You can see this is the um, hepatitis C genome with structural and non-structural uh, domains. The NS3 protease inhibitors are here. The NS5A replication complex inhibitors are here. The NS5 polymerase inhibitors, there's one nuke, but others are coming. And there's one non-nuke, but others are coming in the next year or two. And what I want to show you on this slide is that they're approved for all genotypes now. So we really have a great plethora of options, and I encourage you to go to the IDSA ASLD guidelines, which are online, IDSA ASLD HCB guidelines. First four things on Google are the, the guidelines, and they're constantly updated at least four times a year. So if I gave you my September talk, it's different now, and it'll be different next month. So you don't need to learn it, you just need to look at it. 
What's new in 2016 is Elbosphere and Grisoprovir as approved for genotype 1A and 4, especially in patients with renal disease with a creatinine clearance less than 30. You can't use sofosbuvir, but you can use this drug. There is a lower SVR in uh, patients who have NS5A RAVs. Uh, Sofosbuvir velpatosphere is the first pangenotypic and is now taken over as the treatment for genotype 2 and 3. And PROD, you don't have to use ribavirin for genotype 1B, but you do for 1A. I put in a little bit about uh, proton pump inhibitors and D uh, DAAs because lodiposphere, velpatosphere are less soluble in high pH. So you have to be careful how you use them, and we often forget to ask our patients if they're taking PPIs or even if they're taking over-the-counter PPI. So for uh, lodiposphere, use less or equal to 20 milligrams of omeprazole under fasted conditions. For velpatosphere, don't use it. If you absolutely have to, which is incredibly rare, um, give the soft vel with food four hours before the omeprazole. And we don't have any data on other PPIs. Presumably, that's coming. I put in your handout. These are the recommended regimens. The error is um, in genotype 1A, you have to add ribavirin. I knew I'd make a mistake going from the 10 pages of the guidelines to one slide, so I apologize. So you can see if you're not cirrhotic, you have a lot of choices. If you're cirrhotic, you have three. If you're peg riba experienced, you have the same choices. So no longer do we have multiple different changes if you're peg riba experienced. For genotype 1B, once again, we have a lot of choices. They're all similar except you don't need ribavirin and except if you're peg riba experienced. For genotype 1 failures, if you're an NS3 failure, you can use soft lead, soft velpatosphere, DAC soft, or 12 weeks of this, six week, 16 if you have a resistance mutation. If you're a cirrhotic, I want to make the point, you don't have to remember anything because it'll change every few months. But if your fibrosis is work, worse or you have a mutation, what you end up doing is either adding ribavirin or going longer or doing both. That's really the only message. If your um, SimSoft or NS5A resistant, we all recommend if your patient is not cirrhotic, to wait. There will be better options coming in the next 12 months. If the patient is cirrhotic, it's best to do mutation analysis to choose the best option for the patient, add ribavirin, and treat for 24 weeks. Often in this situation, insurance will detect uh, will determine if they'll let you do that. For genotype 2, we now have soft VEL, so it's no longer recommended soft ribavirin or soft eclatosphere, but it's longer if the patient is cirrhotic. If they're peg riba experienced, it's the same. If they're soft experienced and fail, you have to treat longer for declatosphere or 12 weeks for soft VEL. 
whether they're cirrhotic or not. I think the biggest changes have come with genotype 3, which have became the hardest to treat with the DAAs, and you can see that these look quite simple now, except that if you're cirrhotic, you go a bit longer, you double the length with the cladosphere, but it's still only 12 weeks with soft bell over 95%. If the patient is cephosphavir experienced, it's longer with the cladosphere, but the same with soft bell, whether the patient is cirrhotic or not. So what about the HIV co-infected patients? Well, the only issue is, number one, if the patient has a low viral load, we don't decrease the length of time. It's not in the guidelines. And number two, drug-drug interactions. I am not a pharmacist. I am not an expert at drug-drug interactions. I ask our pharmacist about every patient, including herbs and spices and whatever the patient's taking over the counter. But there are excellent um, resources available. The ASLD guidelines have resources, and the University of Liverpool, which you can get both on, as an app on your uh, phone to look at drug-drug interactions. This is the Kaisergram from ASLD guidelines. Red, don't do it. Yellow, a green is fine, and yellow, think about it. And basically showing you that if you use relpivirine, raltegravir, or dolutegravir, you're pretty well off. If you have to use something else, talk to yourself, since you're the HIV providers, or talk to the pharmacist. <laughs> but don't talk to me. <laughs> so what's the good news? The good news is that for genotype 3, soft bell cure rates are excellent, much better than soft riba. Worse outcomes in cirrhotics and treatment experience, but much better than they've been before. And the big issue is the NS5A resistance mutations. The good news is that uh, renal failure, we now have a DAA that doesn't include ritonavir, ribavirin, that you can use for genotypes one and four. The big issue with renal failure that you have to be very aware of is the timing of transplant. So if someone has hep C and is on dialysis, they can get a hep C positive kidney. Therefore, you don't want to treat them till after they get their kidney. If somebody is not a kidney transplant candidate or is not on dialysis, then treat them. I think that's a very important question. The, oftentimes, providers don't think of the whole patient of the risk-benefit. And it's also an issue now in liver transplant because we're using hep C-positive livers, and therefore we don't want to treat exclude the patients from those. I think the big issue with the NS5A failures and resistant mutations is that SoftVel helps some but not all. There will be triple therapy coming in the next year or two, and hopefully will be ribavirin sparing that will be able to treat these patients. If patients are decompensated and your child's A, that is you look like all of us, then results are superb with soft vel addition of ribavirin.
patients are decompensated, and so if they're yellow with the CITES, we all recognize it, but you need to do the CPT score, which you can get online or in an app. So if somebody is child's B, they may look anecteric, no ascites, no edema, low albumin, little elevation in bilirubin, and treated ascites, that patient will have a worse response. So if we will be getting new drugs, we are better at treating child's B and C, but the timing of treatment is a discussion between the HIV provider and the hepatologist and the transplant center. I put in my one slide is to just show you that opioid substitution therapy is fine and works fine with DAAs. Patients who inject drugs works fine with DAAs. Patients who are drinking, who didn't respond to interferon if you were a heavy drinker, works fine with DAAs as long as the patient is compliant. Compliance is what leads to failure. I put in three slides in your, I'm not going to show these, talk through these, just to look at the uh, issues related to DAAs and HIV medications, telling you which things you should or shouldn't do, which drugs are available, depending on which antiretrovirals go with the DAA. And this changes as more data becomes available. I recommend you go to the website. A big issue over the last six months has been hepatitis B reactivation during DAA therapy for hepatitis C. These were all in cases not receiving hepatitis B antiviral therapy. In eight of the cases in Japan, when the transaminases started to rise, they thought it was acinaprovir hepatotoxicity as the initial diagnosis and discontinued the DAA. But as the patient deteriorated or failed to improve, only then did they test and find HBV reactivation. There were 12 cases who eventually received hepatitis B antiviral therapy. Treatment, however, was delayed in five of them and one died. With treatment, most patients had improvement in their HPV DNA and their signs and symptoms. So these are case reports of patients on semiprovius, soft riber, declatosphere, asinaprovir, and lodiposphere, sophosphavir. There was an observational study of 327 Chinese patients who were being treated with DAAs. 10 of them were surface antigen positive, and three of the 10 flared during DAA treatment. Of um, 124 who were antigen, surface antigen negative and anti-core positive, none received hepatitis, uh, had reactivation. And Mark Zulkowski looked at his study of soft lodiposphere, and of 103 patients who are anti-core positive, none flared. But anyway, the FDA issued a black box warning and said everyone has to be treated whether they're surface antigen positive or anti-core positive. And they need to be screened and monitored during therapy. 
In their 29 cases, some of them were surface antigen negative, HBV DNA negative. We don't have all the data, it hasn't been published, but what we've been able to get is there are a number of patients who are very clearly described and a number of patients where all the data is not quite in. But we know about viral interference. We know in patients who are B and C, one is usually up and the other is down. If you treat one, the other becomes active. In B, C, and D, the same happens. So you should check serologies. You should check surface antigen, surface antibody, and antibody to core. If they're surface antigen positive, they must be on therapy. If they're anti-core positive, you can either monitor or put them on therapy. And of course, if they're co-infected with hepatitis B, they should be on tenofovir-based therapy anyway. The issue is, what if they're HIV and anti-core positive? Well, that patient, I think, should be on tenofovir-based, either tenofovir, TAF, for protection during DAA therapy. The second big issue is hepatocellular carcinoma and DAAs. Remember, when we had interferon, we weren't treating anybody who had severe cirrhosis. If you had a touch of cirrhosis, you could still decompensate. So now we treat everybody, therefore patients at high risk of cancer. And REG uh, presented 103 patients, 53 of whom had had a complete HCC response prior to DAA therapy, and three died, 16 recurred within six months of therapy. The ANRS looked at their data, a much larger database of about 3,000, and found no difference whether they're on DAAs or interferon. The Ital there are no American data. The Italians looked and they had 344 patients, and they found recurrence and de novo treatment within six months. And the usual is 2 to 3% a year, so it seems higher. The Austrians, not to be outdone, described theirs and showed de novo and uh, overall in people who already had had cancer in the past within the first year. Kobayashi compared DAAs to interferon and found no difference in the prevalence in cirrhotic patients in the prevalence uh, incidence of HCC, whether they're on DAAs or interferon. So overall, the recurrence was about 8 to 30%. The incidence about 3 to 10%, all within 6 to 12 months post-DAA therapy. I think it brings up the important point. You have to know if your patient's cirrhotic, number one, because it's, you may have to change your DAA therapy, but two, you have to use uh, end, uh, do endoscopy to rule out varices, and three, you have to do screening for HCC. And the screening for HCC, I'll come to in a minute, but whether removing the inflammation of uh, DAAs actually allows the tumor to grow is a subject of uh, pathophysiologic studies at the moment. So we know that treatment or cure of HCC decreases the risk of cancer, and I showed you that data, but transient elastography may not be accurate post-SBR. So we have more and more reports of patients who were cirrhotic 
with a level of 18 or 14, you treat them and it goes down to eight or 10, and they're not cirrhotic anymore. But we've biopsied some of these patients because they were on the transplant list and they still had cirrhosis. The Spanish have done the same thing. So these are the people who for five years have been yelling at me, you never need to do a liver biopsy. They famously said last year, well, maybe patients need at least one biopsy in their life. But the point is you can't use it to stop screening. So if you want to stop, if the patient wants to stop screening, they need to have a liver biopsy. There's increased risk of cancer with heavy alcohol, with metabolic syndrome, with diabetes. The, the European guidelines recommend screening F3 and F4. Question, should we screen older patients? Should we screen patients with less HIV control? But continued screening with six monthly imaging and alpha fetoprotein is what is recommended and what is required. If you look at the percent of patients who get six monthly screening in the US, the UK, and in Europe, it's 27%. The number of cirrhotic patients who get screening. I always get asked, shouldn't we screen everyone? My answer is, why the hell don't we screen the people we know will benefit? The three quarters of patients don't even get screened properly. More, li more likely not to be screened if you're a person of color without insurance and not seeing a hepatologist or an ID doctor every year. So in conclusion, hepatitis C treatment options for co-infected patients are excellent. They're changing. They're constantly being updated. New drugs are available. The big problem is drug-drug interactions, but we have the resources and I encourage you to either send the patient to your pharmacist, which is what I do, or wade through it online or if you're a great HIV doctor. Um, after HCV cure, continue surveillance. Don't kick the patient out of your practice. Stay vigilant because this HPV reactivation is a big issue in non-HIV patients and uh, the whether DAAs actually increase the chance of cancer is still unclear. But it's easier to treat. We all should be treating. We have the tools towards the WHO plan for global elimination by 2030. This is the care cascade from pre-DAAs where half the patients didn't get their diagnosis, didn't get an HCV RNA testing, and only 9% cure. So John Ward from the CDC gave a beautiful lecture at Croy last week. I encourage all of you to download it, updating from the Philadelphia data of DAAs. And two points. Number one, of those who are infected, now with reflex, so the same sample they tested for hepatitis C antibody, they test for RNA. They found 92% got reflex RNA. If they send the sample to Quest, they will reflex it. LabCorp not yet set up, but I understand they're trying to do it. So you really capture the patient and get both at once. 
And of the RNA positive, 84% were referred. Whoops, where is it? So of those, 84% got into care, but only 11% got treated. So we have a huge way to go. We have the tools, we just have to have the mindset to do it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Don't go because we okay. have some questions. Okay. Um, I, haven't I haven't received any questions from the audience, so everyone knows exactly what to do. <laughs> Right? Um, so let me ask you a question. How many among you in the audience are actually treating people with hepatitis C? It was a very substantial number, mm -hmm. so I think that's fantastic. And has that increased in the past year because of the change in available therapy? Yeah. So, um, but I think everybody can treat. I mean, yeah. HIV doctors already have experience with multiple drug-drug exactly. interactions. You are the perfect people to treat. It's easy and it's fun, and there's nothing like saying you're cured. Right. Patients uh, love it. So I, I was going to, yes, you have a question, Joe. Yeah. 12, do you ever check again? Or just, oh, uh, so people have done those studies, SBR 12, SBR 24, SBR 48, and I have some really crazy patients, SBR 96. It's very clear, SBR 12 is SBR 24. You don't have to keep doing it, unless they're re-exposed. And if they're re-exposing themselves, they need to be checked. Um. Marianne, do we treat HCV with DAAs before, after, or simultaneously with HCC treatment? So you should treat the HCC treatment first because that's what's going to knock the patient off. And then you should decide if the patient's a candid, if the patient doesn't have cirrhosis and they have either resection, then you can do DAA therapy. If the patient has cirrhosis, then you have to decide are they a transplant candidate or not? Because what you don't want is their, their HCC to get worse and make them not a candidate. Now we can treat everybody post-transplant. But you treat the cancer first, then you think about the timing of the DAA. Can I ask one more? Sure. If I get this free consult, it's really nice. Um, what do you recommend for F3? Um, uh, on uh, the fiber scan. In so if they're co-infected, yeah? Co-infected or mono-infected, what, what do you recommend for screening? So I words, screen F3, F4 because, well, now we have the fiber scan. Yeah, so if, you're following fiber the, scan right. if you're following elastography and it's getting, it's over 12, I screen as cirrhotic. Huh. If you're doing a liver biopsy, it's less... Um, it's only a tiny little piece. It may not actually be as good. If the fiber scan's over 20, it means they have uh, portal hypertension. If it's over 40, they're more likely to have cancer. But I agree with the Europeans, screen F3, F4. With the caveat, we do a lousy job screening anybody. So we shouldn't be adding people. What about people we've cured uh, and we didn't actually get a fiber scan? Naughty, I actually had this naughty, uh, naughty. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> or if they you, had a liver you, biopsy. You've got to know what the patient's fibrosis stage is. <laughs> you can use, if the Fib4 is over 3.25, 
If the APRI is over two, use that. And you can calculate that backwards. If you screwed up and didn't assess it, you can go back and assess it post hoc. So Marianne, here's a question. Um, is there a lower age for which routine DAA uh, treatment is recommended? That it's is, not what about a, the pediatric it's population? It's not approved for pediatrics. They're pushing it. They think it'll be approved later this year. So you, we keep saying you've got to sort of make it to 18. Yeah. Okay. Um, for our challenging patients who, patient who is at risk for incomplete adherence, what level of adherence do we actually need? It's a tough question. It's probably, they say 95%, but uh, the data are really not super good. But it's better not to treat than to treat with three, pill, three pills a week, and then they're in a situation where you don't have options. It's better to wait till the patient's in a better place, or DOT. Do you have any comments about preventing hepatitis C infection? Yes, I think that um, the uh, people in Amsterdam have done an incredible job, so have the Australians in terms of uh, needle exchange programs, safe injection practices, harm reduction, and have really had an amazing effect on prevention. And it, there are three countries, including Australia, where eradication is being performed and should be done in the next three to five years. We have not taken that on as Americans. I think there's an intention within the VA system to actually treat all of uh, the patients in the VA system. What do you think? There's an intention, <laughs> yes. Are there, so you're implying that um, blood is the only route of transmission of hepatitis C. Are there other no, routes? No, no, no. Okay. I mean, sexual transmission, yes. IDU, right. certainly sharing the house doesn't give you, um, household contacts aren't at risk. and. Sexual transmission is high in certain populations, right. but often associated with traumatic sex. Certainly the Berlin data and the Chelsea data from London support that. Right. Has anyone considered... Mother-to-child transmission, yes, that's a big issue. It's small, it's higher if you co-infected, but we really encourage young women to get treated before they think about having children. We have no data on the safety of DAAs in pregnancy, but any young woman should get eradicated so that small risk is gone. Right. Um, oh, I had a question, I forgot what it was. Okay. Um, <laughs> HIV, HCV, co-infected, newly diagnosed with both start ART and HCV treatment simultaneously or wait until the viral load is below 20? Well, it's not such a big issue yeah. now. I mean, it was an issue when it was interferon. I think starting, it really depends on the patient. You've got to start your HIV. That's the most important. It's 12 weeks of therapy. Whether it's 12 weeks in Mar March, April, May, or June, July, August is really, I think it's not such a big issue. Okay. Is there any consideration of PrEP for hepatitis C? No. Or B? No. Well, I, I'll expand on that. Um, needle stick risk is 6%. So PrEP we don't use for needle stick because we can cure it. Um, PrEP for 
people who um, inject, so the groups who have 25% reinfection, I think PrEP is not going to be useful because they, it's very, very expensive, number one. Yes. And it, I think more important would be safe injection practices, harm reduction to really protect the patient's um, contacts. Condoms? Condoms? condoms, yes, condoms are good. <laughs> when in doubt, use a condom. <laughs> okay, well thank you so Thanks. much.